Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of Budapod. I'm Catherine. Hello, everybody. I'm Andrew, and today we'll be talking about compassion in times of stress. Over this week, we saw news of kids being separated from their parents, and we were like Andrew and I were talking about this, and it just made us both really sad because, like, this is something that's it should we should be beyond this point by now, but um. But unfortunately, we're not. And of course, following this kind of news, there's bound to be a lot of online debate on these kinds of issues, like people who are passionately supporting their side. And we saw that. And this is the reason why I want to do this episode, because we see a lot of we see a lot of like passion on both sides. And there's just but not a lot is getting done because everyone is not listening to either side and they're just very stubborn in their own view. So today we want to give kind of a Buddhist perspective on how we can look at this whole situation. Yeah, and so when we look at things from a Buddhist point of view, Buddhism always emphasizes having both compassion and wisdom. And when we talk about compassion in in Buddhism, we mean compassion for all sentient beings. And of course, this is going to be very difficult. I think for all of us, when we have compassion, our compassion is very limited. It's directed towards people that we care a lot about, those that we are close to, like our family or our friends. Sometimes we can expand that to people that we can relate to or people who we feel deserve or need our help. But ultimately in Buddhism, this compassion isn't limited to any specific group or any specific person it's given to all sentient beings Mm -hmm. and i think when we see like and when we look at a situation i think we can see like who the obvious victims are obviously like the refugees and people who are seeking asylum being separated from their family that's heart-wrenching it's not a pretty sight but also the people who are kind of just ignoring their humanity and just supporting this kind of behavior. They're also victims of the system and this world. And even though it may not be obvious, they're suffering as well. And I think being able to see that suffering is the first step to kind of being compassionate towards those people as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I see a lot of online pieces about, you know, like understanding the other side, but the response to those will often be like, oh, why are you normalizing this? And why are you, why are you trying to give them a voice? They don't deserve it. But who are we to say that they, these people don't deserve to be heard because, you know, once you can have that conversation, once you can start understanding one another, then that's when the real change happens, I feel. So I think that, with compassion is where we try to really understand them and not condemn them. And the result will be, hopefully we can transform their view. So again, it's very, very difficult um, because it's not instinctual. It's not something that any of us naturally would want to do when we are faced with these sorts of situations where we're dealing with views that we completely disagree with whether ideologically, morally even, 
we don't want to give them a voice. We don't want to give them a platform. But at the same time, I think it's very important to look at why these voices, why these views, and why these perspectives exist. And sometimes when I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed, um, I see a lot of very oversimplified answers. These people are just jerks. They're terrible. They're monsters. They're inhuman. And I find it very worrying because it's not to say that these people have any inherent flaw to them, but rather because of their own causes and conditions, because of the circumstances that they had growing up or the experiences that they had up until this point, they are led to believe the things that they believe. And they have their own views because of this. So when we look at who the victim is overall, like what Catherine was saying earlier, you have the direct victims, those who are suffering from the violent policies that are being enacted. You have the people who are enacting these policies who are also victims in a sense of a greater system, victims of their own hatred, their own aversion and ignorance. And even more so, they're victims again because since they're acting out of that sort of anger, out of that hatred, they're causing harm onto others and increasing even more suffering in this world. And so when we have compassion, it's not to say that we are allowing them to do whatever they want. We're not saying that it's okay to treat others terribly, but it's understanding that they are hurting others because they themselves are being hurt by a variety of things. They're experiencing some sort of suffering. So when we wish compassion onto all sentient beings, of course we want to wish that the direct victims of these situations, those seeking asylum, the refugees, the immigrants, that they are at peace, but also those who are causing them the suffering, that they may also be at peace so that they feel no more need to cause harm to others. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those who are inflicting the suffering, I think that they are either just surrounded by people who are similar to them, or they just have never met someone from the other side that, you know, is willing to listen or, you know, they just never thought that, like, those differences can be reconciled. But actually, I think that you know, if we can be open-minded, well, of course, like, not putting yourselves in danger or anything, but, like, in a conversation, if both sides could be open-minded, I think that they could actually find a lot in common with, with each other. Like, there was this commercial that I saw a while back, and it's saying that, like, it's, like, two groups of people, one group of Republicans and one group of Democrats. And... At first, they're in separate circles, but then the hosts, like, they, they start asking questions, and these people, they just mingled, and they actually found more in common with each other than they thought. So I think a one person is more than just their political affiliation or their views on things, and their people support things for their own reasons. So like Andrew said, everyone has their 
causes and conditions. And if we are able to see that, then it's, then we'll really have the power to like transform and, and even learn something about ourselves in the process, I think. I think sometimes when I see these situations, I also notice that there's a lot of moral appeal to it on both sides, right? And so on the more mm-hmm. liberal side, you have the moral appeal of we are a compassionate society. We are going to extend our kindness and goodwill to all of these people seeking help. And because of that, we are on a moral high ground compared to the other side. And then on the other side, on the more conservative side, the moral high ground is more on a legal basis. And you see words such as, uh, we are abiding by the laws of this country. We can't be a nation without our laws. And those who oppose this um, don't respect the country's laws and so on. And so you have the sort of moral high ground on both sides too. But whenever I see this sort of moral pull, I think to myself, me as this unenlightened sentient being, how must the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas see us, right? So Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm laying in bed and I think about this. How would a great Bodhisattva acting out of compassion for all sentient beings respond to us who constantly act out of our own ignorance and and waste our time with things that don't matter. Um, for example, I've gotten into the habit of staying up until 2 a.m. playing Maple Story, which is a very old <laughs> video game. Um, of course, this is done out of desire and ignorance and general irresponsibility. And of course, I like try to not do it. But thinking about how a bodhisattva would exercise skillful means. Would the bodhisattva say, no, you're a terrible person for playing Maple Story at 2 a.m. when you should be doing homework? Or would the bodhisattva get the same result, me not playing Maple Story at 2 a.m. in the morning, but through other kinds of much more effective but less direct methods? And so Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this. When it comes to the moral high ground, we aren't, we are all sort of floundering in our small spectrum of moral perfection when it comes to these sorts of things. We all have our little difficulties, wherever that may be, which is why I always like using the example of the bodhisattvas. When they look at this situation with compassion, they're looking at the end goal of getting us to change our ways. They're Mm -hmm. looking at us, whether it's going from harming others um, to not harming others, from harming ourselves to not harming ourselves. They're trying to think of the best way. And this does not have to do with anything that they get responsibility or credit for. It can be something very subtle. And so sometimes when I think, what would a bodhisattva do? And I just think about it for a minute. I'm kind of at a loss for this one. Have you ever thought about this or now that you're thinking about it, Catherine, what what do you feel? And of course, we shouldn't be speaking for a bodhisattva, but just sort of our speculation. Um, I think, well, I'll talk about my personal experiences with like just being on a moral high ground since we're on this topic. Um, 
I remember like, cause I, I used to like get into Facebook arguments all the time with people. And I think then a lot of what I cared about was just being right. And, you know, not really thinking about like the end goal or anything. I just wanted to be right. And even if, even if someone else, like what they said did make sense, I would just be like, no, like, I basically just wanted to show how much more morally superior I am than them, you know? And like, that's like a really bad attitude to go at it because that doesn't solve anything. And I think, yeah, at the, at the end of the day, like my goal now would be like to maybe help the other person see like to kind of like think in a, in a perspective that's different from their own. Because I think a lot of times when people who have no empathy, it's not that they're incapable of being empathetic. It's just that they really weren't, they weren't exposed or they, they didn't even think to like put themselves in someone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. So I really think that it's not about what I think it's about like, contributing to the greater good overall i think that's what a bodhisattva would do yeah and i think going to sort of what the bodhisattva is looking at and this is going to tie into the heart sutra but we mentioned that a bit earlier but it's one of the shorter buddhist texts but because it's so short it compresses a lot of wisdom into just a few lines but it talks about how our identities, the things that compose our identities, whether that be our physical bodies, our sensations, our perceptions, um, our thoughts and thinking patterns and our consciousness, how all of these things are empty, meaning that they come out of certain circumstances, certain situations, uh, and since they come out of these circumstances and situations, they're very flexible. I think at least growing up and during my time as a psychology major, there's sort of an impression that our identities don't change very much. The idea that personality is rather static, that once a liar, always a liar, or once a cheater, always a cheater, that kind of thing, where in Buddhism, and we talked about this in our stories uh, in a previous episode, for, for example, the story of Angulimala, who used to be a serial killer before he became a monk and then became enlightened. Uh, it's a show that change is very possible for humans, but there needs to be that structure in place and there needs to be that sort of rehabilitary sort of environment for people to change. Mm-hmm. And in this sort of very hostile atmosphere. I know that, and I understand a lot of the emotions are coming because to both sides, there's sort of this idea that things are not acceptable. Um, these viewpoints are not acceptable. And we want to change everybody else to become more like us. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think from a very Buddhist perspective, the decision is what is going to reduce suffering the most? 
And yes. what is it? Putting sort of our instinctual thoughts aside, what can we do to alleviate the situation of other sentient beings? And so on both sides, I've already sort of argued this out in my head. On both sides, there are going to be answers, right? Of course, if mm-hmm. we are going to alleviate suffering, then we need to um, be treat immigrants and migrants with compassion. And I think that's very true. But then on the other side, it would say, you know, but our children and our other citizens, our fellow citizens also um, deserve this compassion and whatnot. And so you have these sort of thoughts that reinforce your own beliefs too. And I think that makes it very difficult. But acting out of compassion, I think, is something that we all need to really focus on. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember something from an earlier episode that we did. We talked about expanding our circle of compassion. And maybe right now you don't, you can't even like think about being compassionate for someone who like has a certain view, but it takes practice. And even I'm not that good at it yet. Like I can't really like if it's someone that I don't like in real life, then it's like, I don't like them. And of course I'm trying to work on it, but it, it is difficult. Um, that's why like, that's why practicing Buddhism is, it's all the, all of the ideas are simple and, you know, it makes sense when you, when you see it, but it, it's really hard in practice. So, you know, starting out with, a compassionate mind and slowly expanding your circle, I think is the way to go. And, um, just as Andrew was talking about, you know, our identity is flexible and it doesn't, it's not static. I, it reminded me of a piece from the, from the New York times that I read. And it was like, um, there's this person, he identified himself as a, white supremacist and neo-nazi and he helped build this movement to like where it is now so it's pretty big right now i would say and um but he actually left the white supremacist movement and now he is like the leader of a campaign that's trying to get people to leave that movement and like see that they were wrong and i read this quote that was on his biography and i And it really resonated with me, and I'm going to read it. So he said, It's important here, I fully acknowledge that my own reality and human connection were once broken. I also recognize that we must stand firm against those who foster hate and divisiveness. But I wasn't able to shed my own blinders until my enemies, those I had directed my hate towards, took it upon themselves to disarm me with empathy. Ultimately, receiving compassion from the people I least deserved it from when I least deserved it was what helped me reconnect with society. To be clear, I don't shirk away the notion that we must defend ourselves and protect each other against those who wish to harm us. But we must also recognize that violence is rarely ever the place to begin or end a conflict. And I think because that one person was able to give him the chance to 
be a different person. Like he was able to, I think because when sometimes you're, you're entrenched in an identity, you don't really think that you could be anything else. And the person who showed him empathy, I think allowed him to realize that he could be some, someone different. And now because of that act of compassion, now he's able to help more people and because of his position too like he was in the movement he was he's a white male which like i'm not saying anything about white men but like that's the majority demographic of what makes up this movement and i think because of his situation he's able to help that group of people so i think sometimes when we give compassion to one person it's not just that one person they can pass it on to the people and it creates kind of like this ripple effect. And I think it's really powerful once we're able to put aside our prejudices and give someone the compassion that they need. Mm-hmm. So I think, well, I've kind of tried to be ambiguous, but I don't think there's really much of a point in being ambiguous with this. I'll just, yes, okay. I, I am very obviously on like one side of, um, argument as well and so I also am coming from my own viewpoint as more of a left-leaning person but yes I think a lot of times and especially in the earlier days of the Trump presidency I would be frustrated a lot with what goes on and sort of the policies that are being enacted and I don't think that feeling ever really went away but I've grown more accustomed to being compassionate, and I've sort of learned how to be compassionate towards people who I completely disagree with and towards people who I see as contributing to a lot of harm in the world. That being said, I understand that to them, they don't see it as harm, and they don't realize that. And I also think about how I would be if I had been in their situation, if I didn't have my upbringing, if I didn't have my social circle, but instead I had theirs. If I had grown up in the exact same way as them, would I really be much different? And so if I want to inspire people to be more compassionate, then that means changing the causes and conditions that they are in. And that means changing the causes and conditions of the world, changing sort of the circumstances overall that are sort of attacking this country right now and sort of eating away at this country. Mm-hmm. And so I've sort of taken it to try to, first of all, change myself and be exemplify that compassion even more and try to send a ripple effect through my own self. And of course, I have very, very limited connections to those on the other side. And I think at this point in our country, very few of us have that many connections on the other side. So that being said, it's important to allow for this exchange, to allow for this compassion so that we don't find ourselves in a world of hate and anger and so that we are spared from our own flames and pain that comes with anger, but also to transform others with this compassion. 
when I do tours at Shilai Temple, I always talk about this whenever we walk past Avalokiteshvara and her and her pond, because in Buddhist art, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, the sort of embodiment of compassion, the the quintessential sort of representation of compassion in Buddhism, is always associated with water. And so when we take water as the symbol of compassion, this water puts out the flames of anger. So if we are going to stop anger and that sort of fiery pain in the world, we need compassion. And I remember when I was in high school, I came across a Buddhist text, and I can't find it right now. If I do, I'll post it in um, a blog or something. But it was talking about the armor of compassion. When we are trying to protect ourselves from pain, we don't put on an armor of aversion. We don't put on an armor to keep things away and to like ward things off, which is what we would usually think, right? Like if you're facing a really scary monster, you're going to want something that keeps the monster out. Mm-hmm. But in Buddhism, in that particular sutra, it was talking about donning the armor of compassion, that by putting on this armor, we protect ourselves from suffering, from hurt, from pain. But it's through acceptance, through compassion, through understanding that we avoid that pain. And so I found that very inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everything that you know we have said thus far, it's it sounds abstract, but when you put it into practice, it it takes an extreme amount of patience as well, because, you know, everything, I think it's easier said than done. And even as we are talking about compassion, like Andrew and I, we're not perfect human beings and we still find a hard time, like, uh, being compassionate towards those who, who have different views than us and different political affiliations than us. And I'm sure everyone like at some point if they're on Facebook ever, they will see comments that agitate them. And, but just know that someone is not going to be changed in a night. Change is formed over a long period of time and it's slow and you're not going to see results right away. But I think when we're engaging people who, who have different views than you is the first step. And I would say before going into it, you have to have patience and be ready for the things that you're going to hear, because sometimes like it will be hard to swallow and and it'll just be hard to accept even. And but I think if you have that mentality, like, okay, like I am going to just be open minded and hear what they have to say. And be patient. To, I think slowly you'll see the change in the people around you, your community, and and just have faith that the compassion and empathy will appeal to those people. So something else that I try to do, and of course I read my Facebook feed pretty often, when I see people being especially hurtful, whether that be 
in a news report of someone enacting a policy that's very, very harmful to a lot of people, or when people express feelings and ideas of hurting other people in the comments, I try to, first of all, just have a sort of mental wish of compassion and just hope that all sentient beings will have compassion, sort of reminding myself that I need to keep working towards spreading compassion in the world. But also it reminds me of a passage from the Lotus Sutra, where Shakyamuni Buddha in his past life, when he was a bodhisattva, would be ridiculed by others, he would be treated terribly by others, but each time he would say, I dare not hurt you, for you are all future Buddhas. And I think that this is especially difficult because when we look at people who are hurting others, we think, how can they ever be future Buddhas doing the things that they're doing? But mm -hmm. again, going back to the idea of identity being very flexible and very moldable, someone might be doing terrible things now, but they still have that possibility. They still have that potential to change. And I think mm -hmm. realizing that just as how Shakyamuni Buddha in his past life recognized that all sentient beings will become Buddhas and having that sort of respect for them, having that sort of hope that knowing that you are all going to become Buddha someday, I hope that you will soon become a Buddha. And with that, perfect both compassion and wisdom. I think that's very powerful. And I think that's mm -hmm. also something, while difficult, we can also try to practice. Just as you were saying that too, I think that the Buddha had a lot of faith in those who are future Buddhas. And faith is a very strong, like, I think it's a very powerful tool. I think some people, like, they don't even have faith in themselves that they can change. And when you, because I've, I've had this feeling before where someone else has more faith in me than I do. And that's, it's a very, it's a good feeling. It's, it gives you power and it really pushes you and motivates you to do what you want to do, but you don't have the confidence to. I think that treating everyone as a future Buddha, although it's a hard practice, it's something that will really challenge ourselves to be, you know, to be more, to go, to transcend our negative feelings and to put faith in other people. Mm -hmm. And I think every time that Venerable Master Xingyun leads um, a refuge or precept ceremony, he always has the participants say, I am a Buddha. And at first, when I first saw that, I thought that was really strange. Like, why is it that Venerable Master Xingyun wants everybody to say that they are Buddhas right after they take refuge, right after they take the precept, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you first receive refuge and precepts, you're just the beginner. You're nowhere near being a Buddha yet. At least that's what I was thinking. But I realized mm -hmm. that it's through that realization, through that understanding that we are all going to be Buddhas and that we inherently can become Buddhas. And we have to recognize that, that we, in the future, are Buddhas. And so we have to start acting like Buddhas from the very beginning. So that made me change a lot of the ways that I approach the world, how I interact with others. And it always reminds me to act with 
compassion and wisdom. But also, Shakyamuni Buddha takes that too and uses it to view others as well. It's not just, I am a Buddha, but all of you are Buddhas. And so may all of you also have this compassion, have this wisdom. And through that, bring great benefit to sentient beings rather than bring harm and suffering. Well said, Andrew, well said. So I think to conclude this episode, I also want to mention that um, there are a lot of concrete things that we can do um, in terms of like policies being enacted. You can be politically active in terms of calling your representatives or starting petitions or protesting. But on the other hand, I think thoughts and prayers, they are not just things that we say, but through having good thoughts and saying prayers, I think it gives us power and it motivates us to do things that, you know, go beyond our comfort zones and we actually want to achieve this goal. So to end this episode, Andrew and I would like to share a part of a prayer written by Venerable Master Xingrin, and it's called A Prayer for World Peace. O oh, great compassionate Buddha, please listen to our sincere prayer. We sincerely wish that in this world there be no jealousy, only admiration, no hatred, only harmony, no greed, only generosity, no harm, only achievement. O oh, great compassionate Buddha, let people of different ages live in harmony. Let people of different social stations have mutual respect. Let people of different professions work in cooperation. Let people of different religions practice with tolerance. Oh, great compassionate Buddha, you once said, the mind, Buddha, and all sentient beings are no different from one another. You, I, and others are all equal. We need to learn from you the wisdom to close the distance between self and others. We need to learn from you the selflessness to eliminate all of our attachments. We need to learn from you the truth to resolve the confrontations between races. We need to learn from you the compassion to reconcile the conflicts between nations. We need to learn from you the Buddha light to illuminate the darkness of the world. So that was just a short excerpt of the prayer for world peace by Venerable Master Xingyun. And we'll put the full prayer on the blog post as well. So look forward for that. Yeah. And to end this episode, again, I would like to thank everyone who has been supporting us and listening. I know we're not as punctual as we would like, but Thank you for being patient with us, and and we hope that these episodes can help you through some of your experiences in your life, and we would love to hear comments, so feel free to leave a message on our Facebook or email us. Yeah, please, please reach out to us. We're always open to getting comments and feedback and questions from all of you, and thank you so much for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Catherine. And this is Budapod. Bye.